Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. I think it was TNT did a did a special year, some years ago on what it was called. Whatever happened to Michael Ray? And it was about Michael Ray Richardson, who was one of the players from that era in the Knicks. He was a mercurial wildly talented guard but a kid who was living his life out of control and wound up getting banned by david stern under the drug plan um and wound up finishing his career or playing much of his career in europe um the ship be sinking the ship be sinking although you know just not just off on a tangent a little bit i was part of that quote in the knicks locker room the knicks were having a bad year and we went and talked to him and uh, a couple of us, and you know, we said something about you know what's happening with this team, and he just uh, he Michael Ray always had this terrible stutter, and he said I I don't know the the ship be sinking, and I asked him well how low that should go? be the title of that should be a title of a book by the way yeah I mean but whether I asked, it's the whether asked, it's the White House current administration my life I don't know but that's a title of a book it's a quote that's often used you know and it's credited to you know Michael Ray the ship be sinking. But I asked the follow-up question, well, how low can it go? And Michael Ray looked at me and smiled and said, sky's the limit. (laughs) That was today's guest, Harvey Ayrton from back in April on the Mike Wise Show. He's had a legendary career covering the NBA, and he's back to break down all the geopolitical NBA craziness from the past two weeks. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Yes, Darlene. Today's guest is a wise ass, a wise man, and one of the best hoop journalists ever to scribble quotes in a reporter's notebook. He's the great Harvey Ayrton. Welcome, my brother. Hey, Mike. Good to be here with you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, you're the, I don't know if this makes a big deal or a big difference or not, but you're the second repeat guest on the show. So obviously I have tremendous respect for you. And the guy that was the other repeat guest, you agree with politically everything it's it's amazing you know who that is of course just tell me it's not pete vesey no (laughs) jason whitlock really yeah interesting yeah (laughs) very interesting that's what i always say i always (laughs) say i always say whitlock i had no idea how we're friends why we're friends um especially he got me into the zoo of espn but nonetheless we are and um Anyway, look, you've um, you, you've seen all this stuff from afar. One of the reasons I brought you on today is because I remember, shoot, even before I got to be colleagues with you at the New York Times, you were writing about 
the the changing of the guard in the NBA, how they how David Stern had really embraced the international game. And I know sometimes you would you not take an umbrage with them, but sort of like, okay, let's be careful about worrying about selling t-shirts in China and not paying attention to the domestic product at home. I, I almost feel like they had the balance. And then this this time bomb went off from the Daryl Morey tweet, and it's still reverberating. Uh, just your thoughts off the top. Well, I thought one of the, uh, the things that jumped out at me, um, and I do recall reading the piece when he wrote it, I guess it was sometime around 06, 07, the, the Jack McCallum piece in Sports Illustrated, where he, I guess it was a piece on Stern, and he, he went on a couple of, he went on trips with them, and I guess they were country hopping, and as part of this globalization, and uh, he interviewed David, and uh, David, you know, he asked him specifically about the whole uh, expansion and all these deals that were, were being made in China, and David being, um, you know, a, a progressive and uh, probably the only uh, uh, team, major team sport commissioner in the uh, in the in the U.S., who was actually a, a contributor to the Democratic Party and a supporter of Barack Obama, um, he, you know, he said, you know, I do have reservations about kind of what we're getting ourselves into. And then, you know, he kind of sighed and he said, but you know, at the end of the day, my job is to make money for the owners. And you know, it kind of distills the entire story into that one quote. Um, that you know they kind of knew that there are compromises to be made and and um you know uh potential sacrifices or you know uh, of their values uh of their supposed values I should say but you know the money and the market like as with so many other American companies is, you know, China is irresistible given the, the depth, the, the sheer number of people and how quickly that country has raised its standard of living. Uh, and, and, and in doing so and trying to kind of have it both ways, you know, a repressive political system that, that, that squashes all dissent, but at the same time opening itself up to all the Western commodities the NBA among them, because the sport for a very long time, before the NBA's globalization, uh, the NBA has been, you know, basketball has been hugely popular in China. Uh, you know, as we saw when we were there in 2008 for the Olympics. Yeah. Um, no. And, um, you know, that night at the, at the basketball arena, when uh, it was Yao Ming's glory, uh, 20,000 people, uh, it felt like you know the night that 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 night in that arena felt like any playoff night in North America, you know, given the the, the familiarity and the passion for the game. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the fact that this time bomb went off shouldn't really be surprising, you know, to a lot of people. Now, how the NBA handled it and all that's gone on since, you know, provides you know this is what makes sports. In my mind, it's sports journalism uh, so attractive to people like us through the years, the decades now, uh, is that, you know, when you least expect it or, you know, you know, when you're not 
when you're focused on the game itself or whatever, all of a sudden you get dragged into the real world, and all you know you're discussing you know complexity and you know politics and uh, it, it's uh, it, to me it's been a fascinating story. Now I you know not being a full-time journalist anymore, I've not written about it um, for the Times because um, you know they have a full staff of people, Mark Stein and and Scott Cassiola now, so I only occasionally write for the Times. Um, but, you know, it it certainly has been something that I've been talking about. I, NBC, somebody from NBC News called me, uh, and during that first those first few days, Mike, I was getting, like, you know, all these queries from different networks to come on, and because, you know, that's what happens, as you know, uh, when these stories suddenly cross well, over. Not- yeah, you're an expert in that in that field. There's no yeah, question. But, but I, I remember the NBC, it was a guy writing for their website, and he called me on day one. And, you know, when those dual statements were put out by the NBA, the one in, in the U.S., which was kind of like, you know, trying to walk on a fine line, and the one that was in, released in, in China that, you know, essentially was groveling and begging for forgiveness. And so I was pretty critical of, of, of the league office and Adam, uh, and of course, the next day, you know, with fast-moving events, you know, he had a press conference in to- in Tokyo, I believe it was in some uh, somewhere in Japan, and you know, he kind of took a more assertive stand in you know support of the uh, of the league's you know freedom of expression. Uh, so you know, as, as it was fast-moving stories, you know, you know, no no quote has a long shelf life. <laughs> so, well, and uh, I, I I also felt like there was. I don't know if there was conviction behind it. I almost felt like we're facing real economic backlash at home that could decimate the league much more than even its relationship with China. I, I felt like almost, and I, I love Adam, I know, but I, I felt like he was putting his finger in the wind and saying, which way is this going to blow? And I got to say this because I can't cost us any more money. I don't know. I, I, I just well, felt yeah. like it was insincere in, in a weird way. Well, I think, you know, that I'll give Adam credit because I I do believe, you know, that with Stern and and now Adam, that there is a long history. There is is a record of, you know, uh, of, of the league being one. And again, it's all relative to the, you know, the, you know, this, the, the quasi-fascism of the NFL and the way baseball conducts itself. Um, there is a record here of, of, you know, of the league being a place where, um, you know, progressive attitudes generally prevail, uh, although there are obvious stories from the past, the Mahmoud Rauf story of, uh, you know, being suspending yeah. him and, well, there are there are examples of the other of the other of the other side but, of it, but 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 the league. Let's be honest. The league is the most socially progressive, inclusive league. I, I think you're right. There's a reservoir of goodwill there in, in that in that sphere that that uh, not not minimizes what how the league's reaction was to this, but it, but it also puts it into context more too. Like this was a hard decision for them. They do have to make money for the owners and their players. And I, you know, it, it, it was an impossible situation that Daryl Morey made it impossible. But my thought was this, and you, you can tell me what you think. I, 
even with LeBron's comments this week, I, I think there's a lesson to take away, and it's we don't get to be part-time social justice warriors when we sign up for this kind of work. You know, we don't we don't get to be outraged against blackface and then plead ignorance when some warped, you know, Cleveland fan wears red face and a logo that looks like a Native American Sambo caricature. You know, we we don't get to be selective advocates speaking up for some of the voiceless, but not all of them. And and some of the voiceless are in Hong Kong right now. And so I just felt like we need to self-educate with the people we do business with and understand if their values run so counterculture to our own, then maybe it's time we either got out of the Beijing business or the social conscience business, because when it comes to a place like China, you can't be both. Well, let me back up for a second on this, Mike, because I think what you said before about, you know, putting a finger to the wind, let's not kid ourselves about the NBA's progressivism being a financial calculation in the first place, okay? Now, I do believe deep in their hearts that this is what David Stern and Adam Silver believe, right? And many of the players, the people we've known, the great, you know, going back to, uh, you know, Bill Russell, Kareem, Oscar Robertson, you know, that these guys, long before the Jordan era, where Jordan, you know, kind of, you know, straddled the political center, but straddled um, it. He just ran away from it. <laughs> well, he stayed right in the middle and didn't right. want to offend anybody. But, you know, I mean, the, the alleged quote the, that was a second hand from Sam Smith's book, somehow it's become, you know, something greater than that. And, you know, I certainly have used it in, in my work, the Republicans buy shoes two line. Yeah, but, SD, you know, let SD me let me get to, let me let me make the point yeah. that the people who own NBA franchises are not progressives for the most part, right? They are very wealthy men. Let's talk about some of these guys who own NBA franchises. The DeVos family in Orlando, Clay Bennett, you know, the fracking. Oh, Mr. For Mr. Mr. Kill the Environment? Yeah. Yeah, in Oklahoma City. James Dolan is a huge Trump supporter in, you know, in New York. And on and on it goes. I think Shocker. Goes, shocker. You know, absolute shocker. Yeah. So let's not kid ourselves that the guys who actually own the franchises haven't had to have their arms twisted by the league office in New York, in liberal New York. Yeah. In a lot of these situations, you know, I, I can almost hear David Stern telling these guys, schmucks, our fan base is young, urban, progressive, and hip. We are not the NFL. We can, get, we can do these things. We can allow our players to express themselves and speak out against whatever perceived injustices you know, they, they want to. They, you know, to have LeBron James you know, on stage with Hillary Clinton or Steph Curry you know, say that there's no way, you know, we'll go to the White House. There's a reason why the NBA has, I don't want to say look the other way, but, you know, almost encouraged it, whether it's Popovich, Steve Kerr, because they feel, you know, in part, I'm not going to say they don't, you know, support this, but they also understand in part there's not going to be a severe financial penalty, uh, given who their what their fan base is. You just got me. Uh, you just got me onto a topic that I think is perfect, not only for this, but but overall. I almost feel like I should write a commentary on this. It, that it, in a weird way, and it's not bad. I think it's great. It says about it, it says so much about 
what Muhammad Ali and Arthur Ashe did years ago was even more amazing because they really did risk it all. And they did it out of conviction, not out of dollars. They sacrificed everything for what was right. It's almost profitable to be woke now. I mean, I, I love Colin Kaepernick and his stand, but I, I, I resist the, the comparisons to Ali only because Muhammad Ali was not getting a million dollar deal from Nike and doing uh, you know, an Emmy award winning commercial uh, because of his social stance. He was pilloried by you know, either racist America or white America. And it was, it, it was full onslaught. It wasn't half the country going, yeah. Or if half the country was going, uh, Muhammad Ali's a great person. We weren't hearing from them because, well, the white people uh, controlled every part of the mainstream media then. I, I think that, you know, yes, back in the day, there were real penalties. There were real, you know, sacrifices that were made. I'm not so sure, given given the widespread appeal of these sports and how, you know, they have become such a, you know, a, an amazing or, or uh, wide, you know, they're just like part of our daily lives and, and entertainment um, and passions that um, I don't know that even if the NFL, even if the NFL had stood up to Trump when he took it on and, and took on the whole capital thing and called them, you know, sons of bitches and things like that, I'm not so sure that the NFL would have paid any great, you know, price for that either if they had basically said, you know what, we support our players. Because, you know, people – People go to the NFL and they go to the NBA as escapism from their daily routines, from you know the boredom of work or or the routine or whatever it is. And or and they CNN, they need they a break from it. CNN. Look, the same way that people make conscious decisions, like I know what the ill effects intellectually, what the ill effects of football and concussions and you know and all that, the ravaging of the bodies and everything. And yet in my kind of like quasi post full-time journalism life, uh, all the things that I used to root for, the Yankees when I was a kid growing up, the Yankees, the Knicks, the Giants, have all, are, are all gone because, you know, I was like inside the sausage factory. So I saw what got put into it and, you know, it was a job for me. So you, none of us go to work as a fan. All right, so I emerge on the other side of it. And like, so what do I root for now? My son, Alex, went to Penn State. Uh, he was there for, you know, the horrible stuff with Sandusky and Paterno. And and then we kind of watched them rebuild the program with Saquon Barkley. And so I've become a huge Penn State football fan, right? I actually went with a friend from Iowa City to last week's Iowa game. That's how much of a groupie I've become. I know how corrupt college football can be. I know how dangerous the game itself can be. But I still make a decision to pay attention and watch it, despite all of its shortcomings. So I'm not so sure that, you know, after the initial furor died down or, you know, the, the president went on to, you know, harangue other people, that the NFL would have paid any price at all had they stood behind mm -hmm. Kaepernick, if they brought him back, whatever. Um, and I think that the NBA, same thing here. I think what they maybe are thinking right now 
is that you know we shouldn't undersell our own product and value. It's not just a question of we need that market. They need and want us as well. And as you can see, the Chinese government has kind of backed down now. You know, yeah, they, they made a big show of it, you know, the first week. They pulled all the signage and they canceled a couple of uh, contracts. But, you know, the Olympics are coming up in Beijing in a couple of years. They want Western commodities. They want the product. And so well, well, the, the, the Olympics are coming up in Tokyo. No, there's also a Beijing Olympics. Oh, the Beijing Winter Olympics. You're right. Yeah. Right. So they don't they don't want, you know, they don't want to run the risk. This is their big show again, you know, 15, 12, 14 years later. They don't want to run the risk of the U.S. or some other countries in the West saying, you know what, you know, we're not going. Or high-profile athletes saying, I'm not going. Um, so there's always a give and take and a bargaining, you know, a, a, you know it's a high-stakes poker game. Yep. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like, the NBA's initial reaction was to grovel a little bit out of fear. And when, you know, they could have said, you know what, you know, you have a great market that we make a lot of money in, but we have a great product that your people want. And you may not be so quick, you know, to um, shut us down. Uh, and I think that's the attitude that, um, that the West really needs in dealing with a country like China which is, try, again, trying to have it both ways. Um, they want to open themselves up to provide these commodities to their people who they repress in many other ways. Uh, but if, you know, if the West or other countries, you know, they, if their collective, added, uh, if, if their collective, me collective message to China is, well, if you want to do business, if you want to engage in the world econ the global economy, then you can't be telling us what to say in some respects the nba conducted itself with much a much the greater degree of conviction than some of these other companies like the airline and i can't remember which one it was which was uh threatened by china with expulsion uh for having a map that listed taiwan as an independent country oh, that's right and uh, they changed it yeah. you know so that kind of cowardice you know that sends a message to the Chinese that they can do whatever they want and that people for money will roll over. Yeah. In, in certain respects, the NBA didn't do that. Uh, my guest is Harvey Ayrton, um, erstwhile Penn State football fan who um, supports now the exploitation of young men and their possible brain trauma and is basically a bigger hypocrite than LeBron. Welcome again back to the program, Harvey. We are. <laughs> Uh, it's funny. I wa I'm watching my producer on the camera, and he's like, "What is he saying? And how is Harvey about to hang up?" No, I I think you're right. We all, I, like, whatever it is, it's it's. I I'm calling people hypocrites left and right about all of this, and I keep thinking to myself, "What am I really doing? What am I really doing?" I mean, uh, boxing. The third guy um, in three months was killed in the ring. Patrick Day, a fighter um, in Chicago, a fighter who fought in Chicago, was killed in the ring. It's three ring deaths. Boxing is where I cut my teeth before I even got into hoops coverage. And and I just, it, it kills me because the neural cortex in the back of my brain, like one of the greatest things in sports to me is seeing another guy get knocked down 
and the, the perfect metaphor in life, he gets back up and he wins. Of course, the worst thing in sports is when a referee doesn't stop the fight and there's, uh, you know, there's carnage going on that you can tell is, you know, future brain trauma. I'm a hypocrite. I mean, I, I, I talk about brain trauma and CTE and everything, but I still, I'll still pay $75 for a fight every now and then. And so you're right. Like it's hard to stand. It's hard for anybody to be on a high horse when you really think about it. Well, when you mentioned before about, can we have selective justice? I mean, you know, I found LeBron's comments, you know, like every 20 minutes I was changing my mind about it. I'm still not sure what his main point was. If he was saying, you know, Daryl Morey could have waited a week because, you know, we were heading in there. Uh, I've seen people mock, you know, that notion by saying, so, you know, you were holed up in a luxury hotel which only had three gourmet restaurants, you know, poor you. But, you know, by the same token, we see some of the reactions to people, um, the threats of violence here in, in our country when there's criticism of the administration and out of Trump. We see how deeply polarized we are as a nation and how to the point where, you know, there, there, somebody went to El Paso with a gun and wiped out, you know, dozens of people. Um, so, you know, LeBron's point about uh, it could have been um, physically dangerous, you know, we don't know that it, it wouldn't be uh, given, you know, the way people there are only, only have access to propaganda. Uh, so on that score, you know, he wasn't completely off base. Uh, what bothered me most about his, his comments were his, in, in effect, questioning whether, um, you know, Maury, you know, even had the, that, that he, that, that he was ignorant, you know, when clearly it was LeBron who was ignorant. LeBron probably doesn't know anything about why people in Hong Kong are protesting, um, whereas Daryl Morey obviously does. Um, could he have waited another week to, to, to post that tweet? You can make that argument. Uh, I don't think that's terribly unfair. Um, you know, here's an interesting here's an interesting. We all face these kind of personal questions, right? Uh, I'm a part-time, I guess I contributed to the New York Times now, right? Um, and... Uh, I used to be a columnist, and you know, columnists are encouraged to give their opinions. But yeah. on Twitter, you know, I occasionally express political thoughts, or retweet things, or you know, uh, make comments. Um, and about I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago, I got an email from the sports editor at the Times saying, hey, you know, I've, we've heard that you, um, you kind of let loose on Twitter sometimes politically. I just want to let you know that um, the paper... Was this, Jason, was this Jason Stahl? What's that? Was that Jason Stallman or Stahl? It was one, I don't really want to mention names. Come on! Of the no, no, I just, it, was, it was one of the editors, and, and he said, you know, I really... And it wasn't like he was, you know, creating any kind of policy on his own, that he was basically saying to me, the paper in this, you know, highly polarized environment and, you know, politically charged is essentially saying we don't want 
our reporters, you know, I'm a freelance reporter, I guess, at this point, although I do still contribute an occasional commentary. We don't want them weighing in and getting in the middle of this. We've actually cut ties with a few freelancers who, you know, refuse to do so. And so I had a choice to make, Mike. I, you know, do I want to continue, you know, to have an affiliation with the Times, um, or do I want the freedom to essentially say what I want to say politically on Twitter? And I'll be honest, you know, I basically toned it down because, you know, my affiliation with the Times um, is important to me. You're, uh, you're, so you're, my you're, you're the Daryl Morey of Montclair, New Jersey. I deleted my, I deleted every, no, I didn't delete all my tweets. But, but I, you know, no, I mean, right. but we all, we all have personal decisions. For oh, me, it was not, me. for me, it was not financial. You know, I don't make a lot of money as a freelancer for the Times. Um, but, 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 but you're looking at future fight it like, okay, there's other opportunities that might come into play. Like I'm thinking, how hard do I go at Adam Silver when I'm trying to get him on my podcast? Um, and you know, I have this long relationship with him, but that could be extinguished right away if I just eviscerate him. And so like, yeah, we're all in this world of, uh, protecting our financial interests while trying to be woke. Yeah, <laughs> so and, 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 you know, the Chinese could look at us. You know, people, you know, the Chinese who are familiar with our system, let's say they're politicians who know what's going on here. They could say, you know, all you Americans are total hypocrites. You know, you 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 you're you're criticizing us for our form of government. And yet look at your look at look at the look at the positions that your that your president has been taking. You know, look at the things that he's been saying. Look at the things that some of the policies that they've been and legislation they've been enacting. You know, so yeah, there's a lot to consider here, um, and I don't think it, I think it's difficult to even tell someone like LeBron if you're going to um, if you're going to have a voice on police brutality or you know the president or whatever it is, you know, social justice in the United States, that you then have to stake out a position on every injustice around the world. You know, people respond generally to things that, you know, that they're familiar with and might, they feel might impact their lives. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, do, you know, do we, do we go to LeBron and ask him his opinion or expect him to tweet something about every country in the world no, where no, people are being slaughtered? No, but I do believe that if, uh, no, I completely agree with that. But I do believe at some point, LeBron James, if he's going to respond to Laura Ingram's shut up and dribble um, by uh, funding and I guess executive producing a Showtime documentary called Shut Up and Dribble on the history of social conscience and athletes in America, when China essentially says shut up and dribble and you shut up and dribble, it's a little disturbing. I mean, to me, it just is. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think so, except, uh, well, you know, that's why I say if, if LeBron didn't, doesn't speak out about it, I don't really have a problem with it. But if he's, if he's telling Daryl Morey to shut up in GM, right. then I have a big problem with that. Because, right. So then he's essentially – taking on the Laura Ingram position and yeah. saying, you know, you have no right to speak out on this issue right. that you may feel strongly about, 
but you're affecting, you know, you're affecting my bottom line here. Yeah. So that's that's hypocritical. Uh, I don't feel like, you know, that every NBA player should have to um, should have to unless they want to. Because you know, look, the same thing. I, I I've thought long and hard about Michael Jordan's legacy as a celebrity, right? And whether or not. Um, and I used to be critical of him, you know, in the in the 90s and 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 slightly beyond. And then one day I kind of came to the conclusion that after a lot of deliberation, that well, listen, if he doesn't feel that in his heart, you know, what makes yeah, why we, like, why are we making him why are we making him into right? What makes people either? like Muhammad Ali and Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King and Arthur Ashe and Bill Russell, what makes all of them special is that they do have that gene, you know? I mean, it's sort of like when you think back about, you know, you'd like every teacher that you've ever had in your life to be great and special. But if they were all the same, then none of them would stand out as being special, right? So, you know, I, 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 I came to the conclusion that, you know, Michael in his own way raised the bar for athletes given, you know, that he was the first one to, to uh, create a real corporate leverage that, you know, brought a lot of money to athletes. I mean, before, you know, before Michael in the 80s and in the 70s, you know, athletes, you know, yep. before the salary cap, before the uh, free agency and everything, they were, uh, they didn't get what they deserved, right? Yep. And, you know, Michael leveraged that with his extraordinary ability and his competitive, you know, desires. Um, he also, you know, paved the way for for a player and a black player to own a franchise. Um, wow. So yeah. he he does have he does have a legacy yes. with regards to that. He's just not political. No, you're, you know? com- you're completely right. And I, I always said, uh, if you're going to criticize magic or, or or Michael or anybody like you have to look at the era that they uh, played in and lived in and you also have to look at what they've done and I feel like in many ways they've both set up an economic blueprint for the African American athlete that was unimaginable back in the day and I just think that it's in that way yeah that their contributions and LeBron's contributions for that much are are amazing LeBron to me is I haven't in my in my lifetime uh, and covering this, I've never seen a guy affect more people in the black community, really give voice to the voiceless with scholarships for kids and promising to put them through college that uh, that are at risk with with everything. Not only he's done his hometown, but but even I thought the moment when he got the heat to wear the hoodies and he and Dwayne Wade and shoot Mike Miller, it didn't matter if you were black, white, whatever. You took a picture with your hood on. You were you were in solidarity with people who felt that Trayvon Martin was murdered, not just killed in a fight. And that became really a, in my book, it, it, be, it became almost a, a Kickstarter for this new renaissance of social conscience among athletes. I'm just going to give, I'll, I'll ask you for a couple final thoughts on it before we move on really quick. Harvey Aridin, by the way, is my guest. He's probably the only person that I don't cut off routinely because he actually is so smart that I like hearing him. He's a journalist, author, adjunct college professor. 
He's written New York Times bestsellers, including Driving Mr. Yogi um, and uh, the, the great relationship between y Yogi Berra and Ron Guidry, um, which was a New York Times bestseller. And more than all of that, he's probably one of my best friends in the business, a career and life guide at times for me. And, uh, and, and now, yeah, I want to ask your final thoughts on this whole China thing before, uh, before we move on. Well, let me just make one quick point about how many different ways, as I mentioned, Michael. Wait, and, hold and on a second. Hold on just one second. I just gave you, I, I was your agent right there, wasn't I? I just want to make it clear. Well, you're going to figure out a percentage after I, after we get off the phone. But anyway, but I just want to make a point about the, the the multiple ways that athletes can. You know, we used to we went through an era, a long era, where people said, you know, ah, the athletes are not they're not engaged socially, politically, whatever. It's not like the old days. Well, you know, Andre Agassi, you know, in Vegas started a school. Um, Jalen Rose did the same thing. I'm not a big charter school advocate, but, you know, they did start a school in the inner city. Uh, David Robinson did the same thing. Because athletes have so much more money now, they can affect change in different ways. They can do it from, you know, from the corporate boardroom uh, in, in ways that athletes from the 60s and the 70s could not. And, you know, magic is very underrated in that. You know, socially... Magic Johnson was one of the first mega celebrities to contract the HIV virus, the AIDS virus, and actually stand up and admit it. You know, most celebrities who had who who had the virus, it wasn't known till after they, after they died. And you know, in 1991, when a lot of people were still uneducated about it, Magic basically standing up and 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 announcing to the world that he had the virus you know, allowed people to learn a lot more about it uh, educationally. Even, even listen, even the story that I wrote, you know, where, I, where Carl Malone told me that nobody wanted to play against him after the 92 Olympics, you know, it did force people to pay attention through Magic's celebrity and the love that people had for him. And, you know, and, and even in his, you know, post-playing years as, you know, as a very successful capitalist, Magic brought a lot, has brought a lot of jobs and and um, and business oh. into the inner city through his movie yes. theaters and all those things. So you know, it's not just speaking out, you know, and taking a stand. It's it's using your platform to affect change that improves people's lives in places where they need them, where, mm. where they need that. And so, you know, LeBron's done a lot of that stuff. His school, you know, it's, it's an amazing, from everything, you know, we've heard, he's done amazing work in, in, in that city, in, in Akron. And, um, you know, I'm but just, he's, also been, he's also been somebody, you know, who's been willing to stand up on his platform uh, and say important things. Um, this has been a severe test, you know, and it'll be interesting. I know he tried to do damage control, you know, in the hours after his initial quotes on Maury, uh, I'm not sure, you know, he's really clarified and, you know, and calmed people down, but um, it's a tough one for them. It is a, it is funny, though. We, we, <laughs> I jumped all, I was like the rest, jumped all over LeBron 
for uh, for speaking out of ignorance on a very important topic and and thinking to myself, wait, the leader of the free world does that every day. And I, I'm, I'm busting an athlete's balls about it. I mean, who am I? But uh, all right. Yeah, is, there, so, is there any is there any doubt that the president, if he could get a good deal? <laughs> And the tariff thing, and the technology, this you know, the the accusations that the Chinese pilfer the technology of our companies yeah. and all that stuff. If he could get a sweetheart deal to help with re-election, that that you know that he wouldn't sell out to Hong Kong protesters in a heartbeat. Uh, I mean, let's face yeah. it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, he would. Yeah, he would. He would. He would claim they were all Bernie Sanders supporters. I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> All right. Um, there's some other interesting stuff out there, as you know, Harvey. And actually, you might not know. I just found out Bruce Bernstein, my producer, emailed me a story last night. Did you hear about this? John Calipari trashing the idea of more rounds in the NBA draft because he said it's a ploy to stock the G League. I mean, Calipari, I, I've turned I, I've I've what I done an about face on him because I've seen firsthand how some of his former players, even the freshman that left Kentucky, he really still has a connection with, but all of a sudden he cares about players going to college for, Oh my gosh, an education. You, you can't make this crap up. I've always felt, you know, we all have, we all have those in sports, particularly those of us who have been fortunate enough to write, a column for a major newspaper, which we both have had. Um, we all have our favorite pinatas in sports, right? And in my case, um, my feelings have long been that the biggest phonies in the sports across the sports landscape that we cover are big-time college basketball and football coaches. In that, you know, they get everything and the players get very little, if anything. And, you know, how many times have you seen a college coach get a huge deal, you know, a six-year deal for X amount of dollars, and then they go in and they win the championship, or they get to the, you know, the semifinals of the NCAA tournament, and they run back in and they tear up that contract and they get an extension. I mean, it never ends with these guys. And their self-interest is staggeringly hypocritical. So... You know, to me, anything that improves the options for these young kids to give them, if they want to go to college, fine. If they want to go play in the G League, fine. If they want to go to Europe, fine. You know, whatever, it's their lives and whatever works best for them and their families, you know, I'm all for that. And so for, you know, him or Bayheim or anybody else to stand up and say that, you know, the NBA is making it more difficult for them. The NBA's job is not to make college basketball great. I mean, in fact, they the the college game um, benefited for years or decades because the NBA was always trying to get a free developmental league, like right, like Major League Baseball and 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 hockey, pro hockey, you know, foot the bill for their developmental programs, the minor leagues, junior hockey, whatever, right? Um, baseball, uh, basketball and football have lived off the college system and not only, not only had players develop there, but also public, get free publicity. So when a kid walked, when Grant Hill walked across the stage to get his, you know, 
ceremonial cap from David Stern, he was a ready-made celebrity. Everybody always called David the most brilliant marketer ever, and I think he was very good. But let's face it, you know, when a kid's on TV for three or four years at Duke and is on TV for like three or four weekends across March Madness, how much, how much of a brilliant marketer do you have to be to sell that guy to the professional market? Yeah. Right? So, Zion you know, Williamson. what's that? Zion it's Williamson not. one year, you know, yeah. and was on over and over again. So, you know, that these guys, you know, they want it both ways. The system is changing. The NBA is finally, they real, they went with the one and done thing. They indulged the colleges. It's, you know, they've had a backlash. They're going back to the old the old way it was with, you know, they'll figure out, a, I, I, you know, the, certainly when you, you let kids go from high school to the NBA, you do want a strong developmental vehicle um, for the kids who aren't ready to play. Uh, they're trying to, they're figuring, they're, I think they're figuring it out. And ultimately, I think college basketball will be fine because I think, you know, you, you could put five, basically, you know, five of us in the uniforms of Duke and North Carolina and there would still be 15, 15 or 20,000 people in the arena because it's about rooting for the laundry, as Jerry Seinfeld famously said. So, you know, in other yeah. words, shut up, Calipari. Shut up. Yeah, right. Yeah, shut up, shut up, Cal. Shut up on shut this, up and John. Co- shut up and coach. Shut up and coach. Uh, Kendrick Perkins uh, told Rachel Nichols that he's never heard one of Rick Carlisle's former players say anything good about him. Uh, maybe. Perk's good friend Ray John, Rajon Rondo feels that way, but Rondo's a prickly guy. Is that Carlisle's rep? I we had him on the podcast recently. I've known him for years, and maybe because I deal with him on a media coach basis, I don't I don't play for him. I I don't see that side. I, do we? Do you know? Do you know that about him? I, the only thing I know about Rick is that, of course, you know he he was a Celtic at one point in his career. A character um, flaw. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes people who have been in the Celtics organization kind of bring that kind of holier than thou attitude. But my dealings with Rick have always been good. You know, I think he's okay. he's a bright guy, and uh, you know, um, I think he's well entrenched in the coaching fraternity. So, you know, I mean, Kendrick Perkins is now on you know television and. You know, guys need to say, want to say provocative things, you know, whether there's widespread truth to it or not. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I, I, everybody, look, um, every, anybody who sat on the end of the bench or got, got felt the wrath of somebody they worked for, you know, that guy sucked. Well, he sucked to you, but we don't know that he, he was bad everywhere else. I don't know his situation. All I know is Rick, Rick Carlisle, the work he's done with the Coaches Association and, not only paying homage to the to the le- legends of the past, but helping some of the people that need it now. I, I have no I have no problem. Speaking of the Mavs, their wonderful, elegant, charming PR director Sarah Melton is retiring from the team. Uh, I I don't know how many dealings you had with her. I still owe her. She's a big uh, red wine connoisseur. I, I'm going to send her a bottle because. She just she just made our lives so much easier when so many people in the PR industry now they they're more what do I want to say they're 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 obfuscators yeah they're, they're obstructionists obstructionist. and she was a facilitator and and you don't want obstructionists you don't want people that protect 
players. You want you want people. And if you do, I always advise young journalists, go around the PR people and form a relationship with the person you're going to cover because because you want a person that's a facilitator. And yeah, a lot of the a lot of the, the PR people kind of reflect the way the industry has gone that, you know, that, you know, they, they've built moats around the arenas and players and um, and they're more to like ward off or fight off uh, journalists. Uh, you know, I hate to complain too much about it because every generation has its issues. Um, you know, when I first started uh, covering the Knicks for the New York Post in uh, I'm embarrassed to admit it, or I hate to admit it, 
uh, and I saw him against Penn State. He was a good, very good college player at Purdue. And he, I'm ashamed to admit that I actually watched some summer league games uh, a few months ago, and he played very well in the summer league as well. So the Celtics, I know, uh, from talking to somebody up there, uh, feel like they got a steal. I think he was a second-round pick. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's way too early to, you know, it's nice that even Zion has been shooting like 98% from the field uh, in the preseason. But, you know, let's see what happens when the season starts. Yeah, I did say 26 and a quarter. I, did, I think I said it in the game, 26 and a quarter. That's, that, I saw Barkley once score 22 and a quarter against the Warriors um, when he was in Phoenix. And it was, it, it was so surreal. I, uh, and that was a playoff game, but still oh, incredible. Mike, the most amazing, the most amazing thing I think I ever saw in an NBA game, certainly one of consequence was a decisive game five, in Joe Louis Arena in Detroit in 19, let's see, what year was that? Uh, 1984, I want to say. Um, the game that was supposed to be played at the Silverdome where the Pistons had played, but there was a tractor pull schedule for there. So they, <laughs> they moved it to Joe Louis Arena. The ventilation system went down, so it was hot as hell in there. Bernard King was averaging 40-something points a game in that series. That was his real breakout year with the Knicks. And Isaiah Thomas, in a game that the Pistons were trailing deep into the fourth quarter, scored 16 points in a one-minute and 30-second span to forge a tie. He had the ball for the last shot, but Daryl Walker, who was a rookie, stripped him. The game went to overtime, and the Knicks pulled it out. Uh, oh, that's amazing! 16 points in a minute and 30 seconds he scored. I, that's and almost as I, that's almost as phenomenal. Well, it probably is more phenomenal if you saw it in person because you were at this game too. I mean, the Reggie Miller game where he scored like eight points in in 19 seconds or something to 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 take that series in game one and basically won that series that day for because the, the Knicks had the Knicks had won that game. They basically needed to win an extra game to win that series and they couldn't. I think he also scored. Didn't he have the twenty-five point fourth quarter? Yes. In the Garden? He was. That was the that and that was the Spike Lee choke game. Right? Yes. Where he grabbed his privates and you know was making the choke sign at Spike because um, the Knicks did. That was Game Five, and the Knicks did win that series because I believe we went out to Indiana and John Starks went off in Game Six and they brought it home. And they won that series. Uh, that was, of course, I think that was ninety. That was ninety-four. Yeah, because that was the game that where uh, Starks drove off the high screen and the the layup rolled off the rim. But because one of the Davis brothers, or boys, I should say, they weren't brothers, went off, uh, had to switch off to contest against Starks. Patrick just laid the ball in, and then and then stood on the press, stood on the uh, the table. Uh, communing with the fans, really for the first time in his career. Oh. Uh, the following year was the one I think that ESPN made the 30 for 30 about, which was that they finally, you know, because of Reggie's eight points in whatever it was, 16 seconds, uh, they won that series. But even that one went down to game seven where um, 
Patrick's shot rolled off the rim. So, uh, yeah, it was a great series in the 90s. Great memories and, and great thoughts from Harvey Ayrton, um, friend, former colleague, and person that I hope to bring back again and catch up with in person soon. Thanks, Harvey. Great. These are all thoughts, these memories that we'll sit on a, we'll sit in, uh, on a porch with, in rocking chairs someday and, uh, when we're in our 80s. Um, well, you're close, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, next year. <laughs> all right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you to the great Harvey Aridan for spending quality time with us today. There are not enough adjectives to describe what Harvey means to me both personally and professionally. Thanks also to a producer so great that he has been called the Michael Jordan of podcast producers. No, wait, that's a typo. He's been called the Michael Beasley of podcast producers. That's my friend, Bruce Bernstein. Thanks, Bruce. Many thanks to our ace editor, Ben Wolfen, who always makes me sound good. Please check out Catch and Shoot each Wednesday, Bucket Sports and Blocks with Monica McNutt each Thursday, the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman each Friday, and of course, the Mike Wise Show every Monday. Until next week, aloha. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.